0: Hi everyone, this is John and TJ. Welcome to another episode of season three of ALN Math Talk. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of mathematics. Please help us spread the all learners mission, which is to cultivate a community of educators that promote math equity and inclusion for all.
1: And one way you can do that is by checking out our website, alllearnersnetwork.com. We have free resources like our HLCs, High Letters Concepts, and we have amazing math professional development opportunities. Those are located under the events tab. Uh, We are recording this at the end of in December of 2022. Uh, So hopefully we will be hearing you soon.
0: Today, we are joined by the very interesting Liesl Macanchi from California. She is the co-author of the book, Brain-Based Learning. Welcome, Liesl.
2: Thanks, John. Thanks, TJ. So glad to be here.
0: Um, so we usually start by asking people to tell us a little about your background and your math journey. How did you end up where you are today?
2: Yeah, love it. So um my math journey started um similar to some people, I I I loved math and I loved as a child, I loved playing school um as a child at home. I don't know if either of you ever played school or had siblings, but there are rumors, yeah. <laughs> okay, there are rumors. All right. So I come from a large family, I'm one of six. And I'm somewhere there in the middle, and I would sit down with my ki- my parents had um, painted a chalkboard on one of the walls in my bedroom, and so I would my first classroom was my bedroom, and I would sit all of my siblings and all of the kids <laughs> in the neighborhood on the floor in my class in my classroom my bedroom, and I would um, do math with them and teach them math. My artifact is a third grade, um, like activity we did in-, in class about like goals and dreams. That's the first. Time I recorded my goal to be a high school math teacher. I enjoyed math. I was good at math in, you know, the eighties and the nineties, which was deep into, uh, algorithms and rote memorization. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew these processes and I could do them in my sleep and, um, had some rude awakenings when I got to college and realized that I didn't really understand everything that I was doing in my sleep because it was very, uh, mechanical and, uh, just really, really rote, And so I, um, I failed, I failed in math class in college because I couldn't memorize my way through it. And so I, um, I had to, i I'm, I'm still in this journey of relearning you know, I mean, I graduated, I don't know, 25 years ago or something like that from college. And I'm still in this relearning journey of it's like it's like a whole new relationship. It's so fun of like, oh, my goodness. And now I have small children. So I'm relearning and reteaching with them. And it's it's just so much more beautiful and joyful. And so that's where um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into teaching. And then when I started teaching, I had some new awakenings around, huh, not everyone sees math the way that I do. And, um, you know, because I went through math through a really track system, you know, starting in third grade, I was pulled to the back of the classroom and doing these, you know, advanced accelerated math tasks and in accelerated math classes in middle school and then in high school through the honors and AP track. And so when I got to teaching And I was so excited. I was so excited to teach. I started teaching when I was 20. I somehow raced through my undergrad and my credential program. And there I am as a 20 year old teaching high school seniors who are 18, 19 algebra two. And, 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 and they didn't have the same passion and love for math that I did. And so I was like, okay, so wait a minute, there's more to teaching math than just the math. And And so then that brought in a whole new level of learning, which is why I dove into, um, out of necessity, out of survival, trying to learn about how we learn, because that was something that just came pretty natural to me, or I found a way to make it work for me. And so I needed to learn into that. So that's why I started diving into um, learning more about the brain and how the brain works and started doing a lot of consulting work and then ended up moving to Denmark and studying the Scandinavian school system oh. for a few years and um, started a school over there before uh, moving back here to the States. And I'm um, doing what I do now, which is a lot of writing and a lot of consulting and some whole school reform, as well as smaller trainings with schools all over the world and helping us align our pedagogy with how the brain naturally learns uh, math or anything in that case.
1: I love uh, this. I wrote this uh, down that you said, Liesl, a journey of relearning. It's so true. I, uh, I think it's, it's actually harder to relearn than (laughs) to just have learned it. You know, I'm constantly saying like, why did my fifth grade teacher not expose me to this, like doubling and having, Mm -hmm. you know, like, why, why, why did I have to learn the traditional algorithms? And that's all. So I appreciate that. Sound to me, it sounds like
0: a book. I think it's a book in the future.
2: <laughs> I'll add it to my list. I have about yeah. four books that I'm working on simultaneously.
0: Yeah, we're in the we're in the same boat there, <laughs> yeah.
1: Liesl, at, at All Learners, we talk a lot, and I think we align well with you, or you align well with us, vice versa. Um, about teaching math for all learners. Mm-hmm. So when you hear that phrase what kind of what what's the first thing that pops to mind what would be your elevator pitch to someone about how to teach math for all learners not just some but all.
2: There's more to teaching math for all than the math. That would be my pitch is that we need to look at the unconscious factors that impact a student's ability to learn. And I think we have a narrow lens when we focus just on the math and we don't realize that in order for students to learn math in the context of school, right? In the school-based context, where we have a teacher and a student and a subject of math that we need to uh, remember the invisible factors of belonging, of safety, Mm -hmm. of allyship between teacher and student about students being ready to learn neurologically emotionally socially ready to learn and when we ignore those and we think it's like oh it's just my lesson plan and my pedagogy in the math then we're missing a huge huge swath of what impacts a student's ability to learn they both matter it's just that we we often right. you know ignore the invisible
0: yes so we 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 like I like to say, we always say that um, the teacher, the skill of the teacher in recognizing, you know, you talk about contexts and systems, the skill of the teacher with uh, pedagogy and knowing their students is the thing that matters. Curriculum is important, but it won't save you. And technology is useful, but it won't save you. It's all about the teachers knowing how to teach the students they have in front of them.
2: Exactly.
1: So, so you co-wrote this book, brain-based learning. How, how did that come about? Did you set out to, you wanted to write a book? It's interesting. We've talked with other authors and some are like, it's just kind of happened or others kind of forced me to, and others are like, no, I set out to write a book. Like, how did that happen for you?
2: That's a great question. Okay. I I can share the story. Um, so when we moved from Denmark to come back to the United States, I, my plan was actually to retire. Oh. And I was like, I'm just going to you know transition and, and retire and focus my energy on teaching my children. Um, and But I was writing a book in Denmark about our school. And so there's this book um, about our school in Denmark. And I was wanting to get better at being a research-based writer. And so um, I have, you know, Dr. Jensen, he's always just been like a a distant mentor to me, someone I've always followed and learned from. And so long story short, I reached out to him and um, was wanting some feedback on how to be a better research-based writer. And so I started doing some writing with him. And then he approached me. He said, I need to write this book. And would you like to be a co-author? And when Dr. Jensen offers to <laughs> have you be a co-author on a best-selling book, the answer is always yes.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and so that's how I jumped into, you know, being an author um, in English. The other book in Denmark is in Danish. And so, yeah, we, we wrote the book together and we're, we have other ones in, in, on, on the agenda as well as other ones I'm working on on my own.
0: Uh, our uh, model for how kids learn math is pretty parallel to yours in a sense. So we talk about the necessity of problems and tasks Mm -hmm. to get students stuck and that place of productive struggle. And I liked for people who do check out Liesl's website, there's really interesting distinction between productive and non-productive struggle, which I think is really important. Yeah. But then we talk about the necessity of insight that conceptual understanding demands that sudden insight that comes as a result of productive struggle. And as you also point out, having the brain in the right state, Yes, you know, in that sweet alpha spot. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we also say that the, after the insight happens, if, uh, if there's not a chance to reflect on and to talk about that new insight, in, in other words, to connect to long-term memory, to prior knowledge through the conversation, that the insight will just become this little happy memory, like solving a puzzle. Oh yeah, I did that. But it's not useful down the road because I haven't connected it. Yes, so we, don't, we, we would say practice, which is the so many math teachers just champion as a way to understand, is only useful after the insight. And that if you ask students to practice before the insight, they make shit up. And that's where the misconceptions come from, is they're trying to give an explanation to something they don't understand.
1: Isn't confabulate, John, a a more uh, education term? (laughs) I've heard you use that before,
0: confabulate. You could confabulate, but honestly, I usually say that they make, let's say stuff. They make stuff up. Yeah.
2: Sure. So what what you're talking about, John, is the simplest way to understand how the brain learns anything is we go through these three different phases and you just outline them perfectly. And it's outlined in the book that Dr. Jensen and I wrote, Brain-Based Learning. And the first phase is, is readiness and we so often we forget about this phase it was and the the role of the teacher has to get students ready to learn if we're not ready to learn meaning in a in a neurological state that the brain is primed for learning then the, we're not going to learn because we don't care about it we're not curious about it we don't find it relevant and this is true about anything about math about anything someone who like it, someone going into recovery if they don't care, if they don't want it, then they're not going to do it. Mm. And so we we forget how important it is to make sure we get this first step handled, making sure students are ready to learn. And then we actually do the learning. We construct the learning with conceptual deep understanding. And there's often some struggle involved in that as well. But what you're talking about as well, John, is that that final stage of consolidation, if they don't do anything, apply it, rehearse it talk about it then it just gets forgotten and too often in education our 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 pre-service training and all of our efforts are focused just in that middle phase of construction yeah. our lesson plans and how to do the teaching that we forget that if we that these bookends if students aren't ready we're just wasting our breath and wasting our time up there in front of the classroom and if we don't do the practice of consolidating and applying and rehearsing it then it's gonna get forgotten. And that's frustrating for everybody.
0: Well, so you, uh, I noticed that you talk about amygdala involvement. So you want there to be an emotional connection to the learning, you wanna say a bit about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the amygdala is the emotional control center of the brain and it processes and stores our positive as well as negative emotions. When the amygdala is flooded with fear or anxiety or stress or threat, then it limits or sometimes completely shuts down all of our thinking centers where we need to do the math or whatever we're learning. And um, but on the flip side, when there's positive emotions involved, curiosity, joy, socialization, connection, um, then that actually accelerates the learning process and almost acts like, like a super glue to those neurons and just really solidifies those memories when emotions are involved. And anyone who's ever taught, you know, middle school or, or, you know, even elementary school and high school, some people are like, oh, these kids are so moody. They're so emotional. And we wish that their emotions wouldn't go away. First of all, it's never going to happen. We are emotional beings. Emotions are involved in everything that we do. And it's just a matter of using them and um, to help accelerate our learning and to solidify the learning instead of trying to ignore them. And, um, and as teachers, we have so much influence over that so much influence, even from my own emotions, like my own passion and excitement for what I do. This is contagious to my learners, my students, and they pick up on that and that impacts their learning as well. And so,
1: yeah, what you were just saying there to me is if we could just capture that in a two minute clip, I feel like no one anywhere in education should be doing time tests, Like, <laughs> right? Like what a great um, uh, kind of advertisement for why we don't do time tests and why we don't do these high stake things because it doesn't help students to actually access the part of their brain that helps them actually do what we want them to be doing.
0: Exactly. Well, you're also, when you talk about that level of engagement, you know, I, I, if you if you ask us, what's the key shift that teachers need to make, we would say they need to stop telling the kids how to think about math and let the kids construct their own understanding of math. And, um, you know, that goes through all people filter whatever they hear about this stuff through their own experience, which is why, you know, the working with teachers is so important because they're not just hearing us say it, they actually get to do it but often when a person who's new to this way of thinking about math is looking at a kid a group of kids using a variety of strategies they they think in fact a superintendent once told me after watching a video of some fifth graders doing a number talk uh i did you know i was like well what do you notice what do you wonder and he said well somebody spent a lot of time teaching those kids those strategies Hmm. and i said Nobody spent any time teaching those kids those strategies and their heads all exploded. Like, how on earth would they know that if someone's not telling them?
2: Yeah, there's so much brilliance that is there to be uncovered if we create the space for it and the time for students to share.
1: Absolutely. Liesl, in your book, you talk about the lear- about learning's five big players. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about those and and what those are and what they mean.
2: Yeah. So anyone who's been in education for you know 15, 20 plus years, you probably had some kind of training about the brain and brain-based learning. And brain-based learning back in the 80s when it first became popular was so much about structures and like, Oh, here's the hippocampus and here's what the hippocampus does. And then whoop over here, here's the amygdala. Here's what the amygdala does. And whoop, here's the prefrontal cortex. Here's what this one does, And it was all about these specific regions and what their job is. And it was very siloed and <clears throat> people like, Oh yeah, I know about the brain, brain-based learning. I had a training on it 25 years ago. <laughs> and we just learned so much more to expand our understanding to to um, all the different players that go in to make learning happen. And so as I share a little bit about these five key players, I just want people to understand that, you know, knowing about these helps me as a teacher to make decisions. At this point in my career, most of them are unconscious. They're just part of my Mm -hmm. habituated teaching Mm -hmm. practice. Um, But the more you understand them, the more you can intentionally improve student learning by understanding how all these key players work together. It's complex and at the same time, a little bit simple. So um, we talk about these five players. Five players are the context and there are triggers and there is a process that happens within systems that are this managed by different structures of the brain. So my boys right now, I've got three boys, right? They are really big into football. So I'm gonna try to work with a football analogy right now to help this make a little bit sense when we use metaphors in our teaching, it helps take something new and abstract and it connects it to what's called like a a schema network or a meaning network, Mm. something that we already know about and have a lot of meaning attached to it. And that really accelerates our learning. This is why it's important for us to know our students, know what's important to them, what matters to them so we can find ways to connect these abstract math concepts to things that they already have really well-developed meaning networks around. So that's why I'm going to try to do this here. Um, so, um, in so in football, so the context is the environment that the learning is happening. We're today we're talking mostly about a school-based context. So we're talking about classrooms with a teacher and a student, but there is the the physical space. There's also the social space and the emotional space. Is the climate yep. warm and exciting? Mm. Do these people in this space get along or is there tension? All of these things matter and impact the way the brains are operating and how students are gonna be able to learn in that space. So this would be like the, the football field, okay? So is it turf or is it grass? Is it an indoor field, outdoor field? Is it draining outside? Do the players like each other? Or is there tension in the locker room? Mm. The context sets the stage for learning to happen. Then there's the second one, the trigger. The trigger is the hike It kicks off the play. The trigger is something that instigates new inputs for our learners. Um, and this is a this is like the readiness piece. It's overlooked so often that we as teachers have influence as to what's going to jumpstart this learning process. The difference between, okay, everybody, open up your workbooks to page 89. And today we're working on, you know, adding fractions with unlike denominators, and that as a trigger, that triggers something, that triggers all sorts of feelings and emotions and experiences around that. Versus if I trigger our learning time together by having a question written on the board that um, is related to something my students are curious about, that's really provoking, or, um, you know, that prompts something else, then I'm triggering Um, curiosity or, or relevance for my students. So you have the context, you have the trigger, then that trigger starts a process of connections of releasing different chemicals in the brain and different neurotransmitters and hormones. So if I say, all right, everybody open your books to page 89, that triggers a process of release of cortisol, maybe, the stress hormone of like, oh, fractions. Oh no. uh, Fractions are hard. I hate fractions versus if I have some, you know, really relevant thought-provoking question on the board when students walk in, then I'm triggering their curiosity and I'm triggering the release of dopamine and dopamine is highly connected to the motivational systems and the and the attentional systems of the brain. So I'm increasing motivation versus overly activating the amygdala with negative emotions. So we take care of the context. We flip the trigger. We start a process that is connected to one of the systems. So the fourth player is the systems in the brain. And these are the different systems that uh, are run by the different structures, the fifth player. So the structures are your amygdala, your hypothalamus, your hippocampus, your orbital cortex, like all the different regions of the brain. These are like the players on the field. You got the quarterback, you got the tight end, you got the defensive end, these players, but they work in a system. So you have your offensive team, your defensive team, you have your specials team in learning. You have your motivational system, the attentional system, you have the memory systems, you have the emotional systems and there's different players that are part of different systems, right? So your tight end is on your offensive team. Your hippocampus is on your memory team. Your amygdala is on your emotional team. And there's a lot of overplay, right? So sometimes people, they play defense and they're on special teams. That also happens in the brain. I don't wanna silo things here. But when you have the context of a classroom, as teachers, we want to be intentional about what are we doing to trigger the learning to understand what process did I just start for my students? Did I just flood them with cortisol? Or am I flooding them with dopamine or are they flooding with like uh, with norepinephrine or with adrenaline? And what is that doing to those systems? How is that impacting their attentional system or their motivational system um, in a way that's going to help activate the regions that I want activated those, those structures to improve learning? gosh, that sounds kind of complicated.
0: Well, so but... it just makes me think, I mean, it's not as though I I disagree with anything you said, but I, I also think, do you really need to know about the brain activity? Like all of this can be situated in a model for instruction. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, um, uh, <laughs> now I'm drawing a blank the research journal that NCTM puts out, uh, Research in Math Education. Okay,
2: yeah.
0: Um, When I was a classroom teacher, I would look at those articles and many times they were impenetrable to me. And I would think, um, well, it's it's too complicated. I can't get at it. I'll read the articles for the teachers. Mm -hmm. and then when I went back to graduate school of course like this is who we write for yes and so I kind of have this feeling as I'm as I'm listening to this information about the brain like the information about brain-based learning to this detail is Mm -hmm. very interesting among from a from a a larger view Mm -hmm. but from a I'm a I'm a Second practical. grade teacher, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. What
2: am I doing tomorrow in my classroom? Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I, I rarely even talk about those players. And and the reality is that most teachers who have survived a day of teaching know a lot of this intuitively. Yeah. They have learned that, oh, okay. So when I, you know, if I start a lesson like this versus start a lesson like this then things go differently and my students are more motivated when i do this versus when i do this they pay attention better when i do this or this they don't recognize at a conscious level that they have intentionally chosen a teacher move that is releasing the hormone that they that activates a process that runs through a system involved with different structures of the brain like i agree i don't think most of us need to understand it at this detail um, what I share with teachers is like, okay, here is how you can activate the motivational systems of the brain. Here's how you start going back to like the readiness construction consolidation model.
0: Okay. So is the, are those your, the readiness construction activation? Is this your, we have a, a an expression called high leverage concepts, which mm-hmm. is like, what's the most important thing to focus on? Are those your high leverage concepts or yeah, yes, and there's do?
2: like a thousand things within each one of those, right? Like how do we get students ready? there is there's the motivational side, but then also uh, the emotional readiness and the relational readiness uh, in terms of the relationship with the teacher types of things. So it's just it's fascinating to to see how it all works. What's going on under the surface behind all of our teacher moves? and just recognizing that as a teacher, everything that we do, is impacting the neural chemistry of our students
0: that's a huge a huge takeaway if you're working with a second grade teacher Mm -hmm. and you want her or him usually Mm -hmm. her in this country by the way uh i've done some work in other countries as well and i did not find that there were so few men at early elementary grades is it true in denmark that most of the early l is women or are they more mixed
2: there it's more balanced than it is here
0: yeah (laughs) i wonder why it is here anyway go ahead john no i was just going to say so you got the second grade teacher yep and you want her to like take some key piece all you second grade teachers out here who are listening i'm setting this up for you (laughs) so what do you want them to take away that they can use in their practice tomorrow next week to help make a positive change in what they're doing
2: so, yeah, so I would say to really, I mean, aside from, okay, I'll just say one thing. I would say focus on the readiness piece and the emotional, really working with your students to develop a healthy relationship around math and getting them excited and ready to, to enjoy exploring math. And so that could be, you know, taking your math task and, and creating a story around it or turning it into some type of a math game that is practicing those fluency skills. You know, a worksheet versus a game, you're practicing the same thing, but what it does to the brain is so different in terms of the emotional state that it facilitates for your learners, which impacts their learning so much more.
0: I I wanna run a verbal highlighter all over that. (laughs) Because when when we talk about Po- that a, that an important outcome is a positive relationship with the domain of mathematics, especially, I hate to pick on upper level teachers. And I, I do this a lot, unfortunately, but up at the middle and high school level, when you talk about positive relationship being such an important thing, you, you get the eye roll from time to time. So I just, I, I'm, I'm running the highlighter here to say that there's support empirical support from brain-based research that creating the uh, cognitive conditions for positive learning is going to result in more learning
2: a hundred percent a hundred percent which is why the book i'm working on right now is all about what can we do what can you like specific activities that you can do to help students develop that positive relationship with math. And it's, it's, I'm designing it for middle school and high school teachers because the math trauma and the math anxiety that students bring with them into that space is what's creating the enormous achievement gap that happens starting in fourth grade. um, When you, those upper elementary and going into middle school because of the emotional experience that students have had, With mathematics
0: well and the incredible lack of skill for teaching rational numbers and proportions is also a pretty big piece of that but yes yes i yeah that's a a
2: content standards conversation too much too fast
1: lisa as you were talking through all that stuff my head went to a different place which is more than ever that made me think that the silver lining or the silver bullet in education is not a program, a material, some thing to buy for schools. But we have to invest in teachers and developing teachers' capacity and ability to teach math well and to be able to maybe not necessarily understand all these things you just talked about, but to at least have a general understanding and, and to really think about how do they habituate certain practices into their craft of teaching.
2: Yeah. People ask me all the time. So Liesl, based on everything, you know, about the brain and how it learns, like what's the best curriculum out there? And I'm like, no, that's, that's the wrong conversation. That's the wrong conversation to have. We need to be looking inward at at ourselves as a teacher. And we need to be um, working on our biases and ridding those and really looking at the habits that we bring into our classroom that either um, impose low expectations on some students unconsciously with ability grouping and, and tracking things like that. And really making sure like, you want to talk about the research, let's move, stu- move, move student learning, H- teacher high expectations.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you we could, I mean, we're not going to get into like learning loss and what people are talking about with the whole, um, the pandemic learning loss, but we could we could get all students up to grade level, three three years, three years, two and a half years worth of academic growth, if we could just ourselves get to a place of really believing that all mm-hmm. students can do math yes. at high levels.
1: Yes, I, wa- I did want to bring this up because it's a conversation I just had with a colleague yesterday, that it's not even my low students anymore. It's my low, there's a new category, my low lows. These are my low low students.
2: I don't know. This them. is
1: really a thing. Right. Exactly. And we're like, we, we kind of bang our head against a wall of like, how do we what can we do to change that trajectory? Because it's for me, it's everywhere. It's 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 everywhere I go.
0: Well, and we we're we're always in the position of getting people to reek, you know, the when when a person says my low students. Most of the time, it's not a person who doesn't care about their students no. or isn't exactly. concerned, right? It's just, like you say, it's an expectation. It's how they think about them. When, when I first started doing a lot, of, um, a lot of work around kids that have various kinds of learning challenges, uh, and I would do clinical interviews to create an action plan for students when the testing didn't work well, um, the, t- the special educator who was sitting in on the interview always said every single time, I never knew they could do that much. Wow. And what we find over and over is that I'll, I'll be generous about this, that kids who have difficulties train the teachers to low expectations really quickly. Mm. So it's something that the teachers have to be, it's just like bias. Mm-hmm. It's something that they have to be super tuned into or it's an easy place to slide into. Oh, you know, it's like when, when we <laughs> we tell schools or when we're giving workshops and we say all learners should be present for the main lesson. But just in case there's any confusion, we mean all learners. Yes, even Charlotte, <laughs> even Dante, mm-hmm. even Lee all those people who you think of, oh yeah, everybody's here. Well, you know, except for the kids that get pulled out. Yeah, no, 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 oh. All means all the kids are really there. And it is shocking how many folks give you the side eye over that stance.
2: Yeah, it's, there's just, it's a complex topic. There's so much that we have work to do on ourselves as a teacher, like we talked about. And at the same time, the students bring with them, especially at the middle school and high school level, like you're talking about, they bring so much. I'll call it neural programming. Other people will call it baggage from their previous math experience. And so, one of the things that I'm working on right now is I'm designing an, a math intervention, like an after school program for um, a district. And it is, there's going to be plenty of math in it. It's going to be joyful and social and and game-based and with some rich, challenging tasks. But we're going to be spending a good portion of our time looking at and developing a positive math identity and a belo- sense of belonging in mathematical spaces. And um, there's healing that needs to be done mm-hmm. as well as some really powerful evident- evidence-based tools to help students um, to to really believe in themselves, so it's one of those both ends, teachers and students. But if we just say like, "Oh, students just need a growth mindset in math," and and we put all the onus on them, then I mean, first of all, it's not going to work because a lot of it is is passed on implicitly from the adults
0: um, around. Well, and you and you can't you can't you can do it does not promote growth mindset. I mean, I, you know, surely in your work, you appreciate the notion that we have to have this expectation of success and it's positive, but, but the grain size in all of those conversations is so large and passing out a sheet that gets you to say, I can do it and I'm good. And I mean, it, I don't want to be cynical about it, but it's probably not effective. Like you, you have to do stuff that's actually going to change the experience on the ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Liesl, that intervention you were just talking about, you're creating that from middle school. Is that correct? I think Mm -hmm. I saw that. Okay. Um, So I know we, we need, we're coming to the end of our time together, unfortunately, but um, I was just wondering if there's anything else that we didn't ask you about or anything else you wanted to share with our listeners?
2: all students can learn math. And, and it's possible. I mean, one of my favorite resources that I share freely is also on my website. And it's, it's it's a small, small book. And it's called all students can learn math, as long as they're answering yes to these seven questions. And it outlines the seven questions that students need to be able to answer in the affirmative to in order for the, the context to be set for them to learn. And people will be surprised that there isn't a lot of math in those questions. It's not like, oh, they need to be able to know their multiplication facts. That's not one of the seven questions. It is um, more about creating that social and an emotional space, the context that's needed for learning to happen. And when we get that right, it's just magical almost mm-hmm. what can happen it just really is amazing what we can do with students when they are in a supportive enriching space to to learn math
0: well thank you Liesl McConchie, so much for joining us today
2: it's been a pleasure
0: we look forward to uh, we're going to have to have more conversations we say this <laughs> a lot but We always have to cut cut these conversations short. Remember, you can you can find a recording of our podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com and on Spotify or Anchor, search ALN Math Talk, along with free resources like our high-leverage concepts, high leverage assessments, high-leverage progressions, high-leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. Aln Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, all rights reserved. Executive producers John, I was just thinking Tapper, and TJ, the designer Jemison, who celebrates his nuptials. <laughs> got married last night. I did. Oh my goodness. I, TJ. I didn't tell anybody yeah. <laughs> until after. <laughs> spiritual, Congratulations. spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert, Fly in the Water, Micro Brew, Stats Loving Laird reminds us that we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Please
1: join us next time for more amazing discussion uh, discussions about interesting math topics and with fascinating education folks.
0: See you next time.